You're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All-Stars Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for the Talk and Footy episode for this week. Uh, still got the cold a little bit, but I'm a bit better than the Supercoach TLT episode for the special buy round that we did on Tuesday night. So hopefully get through this one a bit easier. But for the Talk and Footy this week, you know, we had Jamie Soward last week and we're following it up with another first-timer on the All-Stars Podcast. And that is Tim O'Connor, who you might have heard on the NRL Supercoach 360 podcast. Uh, he also does a lot of the tra- NRL Supercoach Tragics podcast as well, which you'll get to see and hear too. And if you don't know about that, there's a great um, NRL Supercoach Tragics page on Facebook that you can go and follow as well. But Tim, welcome aboard to the NRL All-Stars podcast, mate. We had a good chat on the the Tragics podcast a few weeks ago where I did a cameo and it was uh, great to get you on for this week. It's great to be here, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. It's um. Yeah, do a bit of work with the 360 boys when I can and, uh, yeah, help out the guys with Tragics. It's, I think I'm a bit of a super coach Tragic myself. I've been playing since 2014 and um, not doing as well this year as I normally am, normally sitting up in the 1%, uh, top 1%. But, yeah, this year went with a bit of a different strategy and it just hasn't paid off. So uh, I've spent most of the year chasing my tail. I think I'm up now to about 18,000. Um, I think I've only had two, two rounds with red arrows since round four. Uh, but it's pretty easy to find green ones when you start back in 85, between 85 and 100. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're also um, up in Queensland and I'm in Sydney and you're also a mad Brisbane Broncos fan. So that's going to work out pretty well because this podcast, we're also going to go over uh, Origin 2 and then discuss the upcoming Origin 3 game. And there's also some Broncos news, this podcast. So it works out perfectly for you. We've framed it up perfectly. Yeah, mate. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Pretty excited as a Broncos fan. It's going to give head, give uh, give Kevy some headaches, that's for sure. But uh, what will be most interesting to see if he can keep everyone happy. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. So for everyone that's tuning in for the first time, uh, this is a Talking Footy episode. Drops every Friday and this is just all about footy. We talk about all the current things in rugby league at the moment, as well as looking at uh, past players at times and also obviously reviewing where the game is at at the moment and all the big stories. So if you like the Supercoach episodes, we record them every Tuesday and they hit on a Wednesday and you can tune into those ones. So you've always got the two footy fixes each week, one for Supercoach and one for actual footy talk. So talking footy this week, the first thing that we're going to do Let's have a quick look at round 16. So last week I had to have a week off, unfortunately, from talking footy, which was a shame. I uh, had a great episode with Jamie Sauer the week before, especially with the NRLW focus, which I liked to, to do to get really involved with the NRLW. But it meant that we missed out on talking about uh, round 16 as much as well. So just having a look at it, I know we're ahead, we've got round 17 coming up and we've had the rep round in between as well. But round 16, I think that the big takeaways for me, Tim. First thing that I was going to touch on was um, how bad the Titans were. So they lost to the Knights 38 to 12. And it's, the drums have been beating pretty heavy for a month. There was even reports the other day that, that Holbrook is gone. He's, he's over. That hasn't become substantiated reporting just yet. But it is something that on this podcast in particular, I've mentioned from like day dot from the start of the season that he, they look bad. 
they should be in a lot more trouble than what they have been um, in at least like the last month they've been getting, I think, appropriate negative media. But when we're looking at the score, like the Knights have obviously been struggling too. Like this was a battle of the cellar dwellers. Gold Coast Titans were last, but, you know, Newcastle weren't far off on four and against either. And Newcastle were that comprehensive, 38-12. to 12. But, you know, if you're watching that game, I just think that if you're a Titans fan, you would have been absolutely spewing because Ed- Edric Lee, the great man, scored five tries on them. Um, Dom Young dominated on the other side. And they just had nothing on either side. Like 38-12 to 12 probably flatters them because if it wasn't Newcastle, that score in round 16, you know, against a, a Storm or a Penrith, they, they would have gone to 70. Like, they were that bad. And when you look at the match stats, you know, the Titans completed at 71%, which is obviously not good. They only had 41% possession, and people sometimes make an excuse for that, but they only had 41% possession because they were just that bad. Um, and, yeah, it just it's one of those things where you've got 14 errors, Newcastle's eight, and you can see why they had such little possession. They conceded the most penalties in the game as well and generally just look rudderless. So, I mean, the big takeaway for me, that was the first one looking at that Titans-Knights game. The Knights got a good win, but the big takeaway is the Titans are just woeful and they have to, they're absolutely screaming for changes there. They have to be. Yeah, mate, it's been really interesting. The, the Titans... They've all the talks been about their forward pack. Um, I mean, they've got Tino that, that leads away really well. David Fafita obviously came back for last week's game as well. So it, they've got they've certainly got the stock there, and they've been really disappointing. They they started the season fairly well, um, and I think most people thought that they would be somewhere between maybe six and twelve um, by the end of the season, but certainly in and in and around the eight. Um, but yeah, it's they've just been interesting. They've even their backs. Their backs are they're not too shabby, um, and certainly the way the Knights have been playing. Look, I'll be honest. I tipped Titans. I had Knights, uh, and then just before kickoff, tipped changed my tip to Titans. The frustrating thing for me is that's the only game I actually tipped incorrectly for last week's round. Um, even jagged the Manly over the Storm game. So oh, big. It's um yeah, so I actually in all my tipping comps I, I made a few places there, so that was really good. But I just couldn't believe it. I, I thought that the um the Titans was probably one of the more surer ones that I thought that I had for the round. So um yeah, it's it was annoying. It's I just can't believe how badly they are going. And and it's certainly the the finger's gotta be starting to point at Justin Holbrook and what's what's the next step for, for the Titans. The interesting thing at the moment is obviously there's enough extra coaches around. Um, surely Flano gets a gig sometime soon. Someone will snap him up. Um, he can't just keep doing the uh, the Fox Sports and Channel Nine gigs for yeah for the the caliber of coach that he is. I'm sure there's um, there's got to be a spot there for him somewhere. Just amazes me that the the Titans have done as badly as they have this season. They're um, they're almost looking like a sure thing for the Wooden Spoon at the moment. The way they're playing. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if they don't get it. And one of the things that really struck me their last couple of games, including that capitulation against Newcastle, and it's nothing new, but I mean, the Newcastle game, they had David Fafita even come back. And so that, you know, at least gave them probably the best player that was involved in that game as far as talent goes. And he still, he came, I know he's coming back from injury, but he came off the bench and he's come off the bench for them before when he's actually been healthy. You know, and you look at this side though, and the thing that strikes me all the time, and especially the last two weeks, they've got no leadership. On the field, you can see they have absolutely zero leadership. You go through the players that are being selected and, like, in that back line, you know, you've got centres of Herbert and Kelly, Marju and Osako, 
and, and Brimson at fullback, um, Sexton and Turner at your halves. They're a lot of young guys and, and, and some journeymen as well. And you sort of look at stuff like that, and I, I think to myself, well, who's the leader here? You, who are the guys that are leading this team around the park? And then I all of a sudden look at the squad that the Titans have and go, well, Corey Thompson is probably their best back, and he can't even get a run in this side that he's getting the wooden spoon and performing this badly to the point that Asako is on one of the wings and he was a Broncos off-cut that couldn't get a, a job for the Broncos when they got the wooden spoon that year. And yet he's, he's ahead of someone like Corey Thompson, who has actually performed well for the Titans in the past, is quite a competitor, has a lot of experience, and he's a pretty good leader despite being on the wing. And he's also a professional. Like those sort of decisions, you just go, well, if you don't have leaders in your team or experience in your team, you want guys to step up and that's not happening. And then in lieu of that, you need a coach and also an organisation above the coach that's actually helping lead them. And, and that comes through on the field and none of it's there. And I know that we, we mentioned Holbrook a lot, but I'm going to give him a little bit of a break now because one guy's name who hasn't come up once is Mao Meniga. And I, I have to say, like, I love Big Mao. I loved him as a player, one of my favourite players to watch as far as centres go ever. But he got a contract extension last year. You know, six, seven months ago, he got a two-year contract extension. As, and, and his role is something along the lines of director consultants of high performance for the Gold Coast Titans. Now, if you're in charge of high performance and this is how these guys are playing, even last year they looked not that great despite making the, the edge of the eight. You know, they, anyone could have made that. It, it, they didn't look good. And they haven't looked good over Mel's tenure. And a lot of the recruitment and, and things like leadership that I'm talking about, um, team selections even, like, Thompson not being selected and so forth, letting Fogarty go to end up having other experienced halves that have been worse. You know, it's some of that should be blown back on Mao. So I'm not going to say I feel sorry for Holbrook because I think he's had enough opportunity now, but, you know, I do feel like he's been hard done by that nobody else is getting mentioned when uh, they get smashed 38-12 to by Newcastle and they've got these glaring issues. Yeah, look, I completely agree with the Corey Thompson issue. It's... um. It's a bit of a strange one. He's a he's a decent footballer. He's uh, and versatility as well. I I think he could probably play anywhere in the back line if they needed him to. But it's uh it's like he's um I don't know he's upset the boss or something because he certainly played played fullback at other clubs. Um, he's he's played in the wing. Uh, I'm sure he could play in the centres as well. He's a, he's definitely a classy footballer. He's he's got all the things that you want from someone in your back line, and he's pretty quick as well. So. Yeah, it is a bit of a strange one with Corey Thompson, how he doesn't get a gig. And then especially when they have, they'll have guys that they'll sit, like um, Marju sat for three or four weeks and then they brought him back out of the cold for, for some strange reason and and still Thompson didn't get a go. And then, uh, yeah, the the interesting thing with Mel Meninga, it's, um, it's a strange one as well. We, he's sort of someone that you, you hear a lot about in the media, but you, he doesn't seem to come out in the media and say too much. So... For someone who's in charge of recruiting and culture and and those sorts of things that he's supposed to be working towards at the in the behind closed doors in the back of the club, then yeah, there's I can't imagine team morale's real flash there when they can't win a football game at the moment against somebody who's been playing as poorly as the Knights have. Um, so yeah, look, I, I think both of those key points are. Um, yeah, it certainly makes you wonder. They've, they've got someone with Mel's experience and, uh, and certainly his 
He's obviously coached at NRL level, not as well as it probably could have gone, I'm sure. But um, he, he certainly coached Queensland well for a long period of time. Maybe he's one of those coaches that are just going to be really good at, at coaching rep footy. He was um, obviously involved in the Kangaroos program for a long time as well. So it's, um, it is an interesting call on, on both accounts. It's funny with Mel because, one, there isn't any talk and some of it should be removed from Holbrook and probably put on him as well as the wider Gold Coast Executive Committee. But, you know, Mel, like you rightly said there, he's, his job's are very much around culture, um, recruitment and performance. And those are the three things. I, I reckon that if you ask most people what they've seen from the Gold Coast Titans this year and certainly last week, it's, you'd say what was lacking that you've seen and they'd say... Probably recruitment, culture, and team performance. So, if that's Mao's job, how's he getting a two-year extension, and how is he, you know, also keeping his head out of the media as far as this is on you, mate, as well? But it's a strange one for me. I think that, like I've said a lot of times on this podcast, this is a no bullshit podcast. It's a, you know, no media affiliations, no um, no worries about upsetting players or people in the game or whatever. I'll, I'll just tell my opinion and say what it is. And, you know, if you agree, great. If you don't, that's fine. We can still keep talking footy. But unfortunately, in the media, one of the big problems that I've mentioned is people that are, I guess, in that inner sanctum or respected within the media or whatever, there's guys that are just taboo to go after. And I think that Mel is one of those guys that he's very well respected as he should be. And, and he, he's a great guy by all accounts. And Unfortunately, you know, that might mean that some of the media doesn't really go after him like they should. But we do need to move on to some of the other games. Um, a couple other surprising ones. Melbourne ended up with a – it ended up being a 36-30 to 30 loss against Manly, but Manly were up significantly against them until you know, the last five minutes. The Storm actually scored four tries. So it was very, very comprehensive from Manly. And that one was a big – Big loss for the Storm because I think most people, although you mentioned that you tipped Manly, which was a great one, I think most people, even with Munster out, still would have thought that the Storm would have won that one. And likewise for me, you know, that had Pappenhausen back too, even though Munster was out, which kind of negated it. But for me, you know, I've sort of not written Manly off post-turbo, but didn't think that they could compete with the top teams post-turbo. And they've now pushed into ninth spot um, in front of where the Roosters were with that resounding victory. And it was very comprehensive against Melbourne. Yeah, look, Manly's just an interesting team. And the whole thing just revolves around DCE. He's um, he's a player, I mean, I know we're not talking super coach at the moment, but he's a player that I generally try and get into my super coach team for the last part of the season. He just seems to grow an extra leg every year around origin time in the back end of the season. And I just kind of had a little bit of a hunch that with with Munster missing um, and DCE playing much better footy and being back around the rep uh, the rep arena, I think it just makes him start playing much better. I think he obviously enjoys his footy a lot better uh, once he starts getting all the rep players around him. I guess it's very different at Clubland with Manly. They're not a star-studded team like some of the other clubs are in the NRL. And I think he's just a player that seems to get more enjoyment out of uh, once it comes to rep time and then the, the, the latter part of the season after that. Yeah, I tend to agree. He's definitely a second-half type of player. And he had two two try assists, line break assists, and a really big 40-20. His kicking game was really spot on, and that's something that he really needed. I was critical of DC, especially the first third of the season. I don't think he was up to par at all. Uh, but that was a really good game from him. And some of their younger backline, like um, Kola and Saab, both had a couple of line breaks, both scored tries. And Ola Kwatu's 
you know, you'd sort of think, especially against a Melbourne Storm defence, that guys like Olakalatu won't do what they had been doing. But he still did the same thing. He had nine tackle breaks, a line break try, a couple of offloads, and he got away pretty easy and just really dominated that edge. Um, and so the way that they played, you'd, you'd expect that they did that type of game against the Tigers. But against the Storm, even though Manly were at home, it was pretty impressive. Um, a couple of the other games from the weekend that were also impressive... South Sydney uh, have not been very good this year. And I don't, I even think the most hardened South fans would agree with that. Whilst Parramatta uh, have actually been a good team, although they have had a couple of little sprinkled bad losses. They're a team that has beat Penrith and Melbourne this year. And going up against South Sydney, I think everybody was tipping the eels, but they lost 30 to 12. And that, that again, much like the storm tr- uh, scoreline that flattered the eels because uh, they scored in the 73rd minute. Um, they're merely the 22nd minute they scored, but then South polled on three or four unanswered tries. And it was really all Souths. And it was the return of Latrell Mitchell as well. And he was very good. You could tell that they needed him, I think, um, because he took a lot of pressure off Cody Walker, who was decent. But, you know, really Latrell being back, I think, helped them hugely. But I don't think anyone thought the Eels would have played as badly as what they did. And likewise, I don't think anyone thought that the Rabbits would would do as well as as what they did either. Um, the Eels missed almost twice as many missed tackles as what South Sydney did. And there was hardly any penalties in the game to even affect it. So it was really, I, I guess you could look at it two ways, Tim, and I'm interested in your take. Do you think it's a, a return to form for Souths and Latrell was a missing piece and we're going to see a big run from them on the way home to solidify them in the top eight? Or is this just a normal, you know, second half power dysfunction that we're used to each year where they really just drop off until finals time? Look, I, I think it's probably a little little of column A, a little from column B. Um, I, I think Cody Walker is such a confidence player and I think he just needs other confident players around him. I think the fact that obviously Reynolds is no longer there has made a, a massive difference to that team as a whole. Uh, and I think Reynolds' leadership has probably been the difference. That, that they've been missing. So the fact that, that Cody sort of had to take a lot of it on his own shoulders, I think that's made a, a huge difference. I think now with Latrell back, the confidence that just beams off that bloke is is unbelievable. Um, reminds me a lot of Mundine and, and um, oh, Nathan Blacklock and some of those other guys that have come from, come from uh, Indigenous backgrounds before him. They just, just uh, what's the word, exude confidence. Um, and I think it just becomes infectious. I think the fact that he's there takes a lot of pressure off Cody and just lets him play a little bit freer. I think a, a free-playing Cody Walker makes a massive difference to that South team. Obviously, um, Latrell back just means that it's one more attacking player that, that a defensive line has to try and keep an eye on, which takes a little bit of pressure off Cody, um, and then he can do his thing. As for the Eels, oh, mate, they've just been they've been unbelievable at times. Like you said, they've beaten Panthers uh, and they've knocked off the storm as well. But I think were, were they also the team that got beaten by the Dogs when the Dogs had their first big win about a month ago or whatever it was? Yeah, and they got done by 30-plus against the Dogs. So that was a resounding, thumping loss. Yeah, it's um, they're, they're just an, a really interesting team. They seem to get to this this mid to late season part, have a couple of hiccups and, yeah, go from hero to zero. But it's it's um, you can almost set your watch off it off the uh, off the heels. It's It's... I don't it's know. almost like it's almost like a, a better dragons side, isn't it? Like the dragons do it, but they're sort of the eels light. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely, um, absolutely. It's um, it's like the 
whoever's in charge of there, um, uh, I guess the role that, that like Mel Meninga has, like we were talking about before with the Titans, whoever's got that role to to keep everyone G'd up and, and the culture and keep everyone happy at the Eels, they just seem to obviously go on holidays this time of year. So the feel-good story for the round, uh, the Mount Smart return for the Warriors, you know, sold-out Mount Smart game. I think even non-New Zealand residents, non-New Zealand Warriors rugby league fans would have gotten chills just seeing their welcoming back where they had um, all the everyone doing the haka as they're walking towards the stadium and things and all that type of fanfare. Like it was so phenomenal seeing them touch down in New Zealand and return and then play the sold-out Mount Smart Stadium game. Tigers were hopeless, scored two points, but you need to highlight the positives in, in some rounds and the feel-good stories. And for me, the feel-good story of the round was the Warriors returning, but I do want to move on because the next topic I want to spend a bit of time on, and it's going to include two games of this round, but the next topic is going to be about the refereeing standards at the moment, of which two games were controversial in that regard. One of them was the Roosters losing 26-18 to versus Penrith when they were up in the final 10 minutes, and there was a big controversial call in that one. Uh, the other one was the 12-10 victory of the Dragons at Wynn Stadium over the Canberra Raiders, where Ricky Stewart was filthy on that one as well and how that game ended. Let's start off with the Raiders game um, and then we'll go into the Roosters and also overall some of the comments from the NRL and executive on some of the coaches' comments about what's happened in those two games. The Dragons game at the end, for those that didn't know, um, Ben Hunt had multiple infringements defending his line with about 30 seconds to go. Um, The Raiders were attacking the Dragons' line down 12-10. Obviously, in those circumstances, what we have seen in the past is that you do get the six again called. Um, but in this instance, it was blatant. Um, I would liken it to uh, the Kafusi hold down where he got um, Sinbin in Origin 2, which we're going to talk about after this as well. But Ben Hunt was even more blatant than that. He's flopped on a tackle that was already made. Um, that's a, a penalty all day, but instead it got six again. And then on top of that, he wasn't square at marker and purposely jumped the gun to go and tackle the hooker with seven seconds to go and and laid on that as well. And that saw out the game and got Dragons a victory. And rightly so, Ricky Stewart especially, but definitely fans, including me, were like, "This this is wrong. It should have been a penalty. It was clear as day. And it was blatant. And that would have been a 12 or score line and the game would have gone in extra time. And Canberra could have won. And Canberra are in a position now where everyone's really going to count for them. Uh, and, you know, that if they're two points off the eight at the end of the year, they're going to look back on that game as their fans are and, and lament a game that got away. Because to me, watching the game, I thought they had momentum at the end. Obviously, they did because they're attacking. I thought they could have gone on with it and won it because the Dragons are one of those fader type of teams as well. Um, so it, it really did was a costly call. But I made the point online, Tim, especially with this call in many chats that um, because some people were bringing up, you know, you look, referees going to make mistakes. It's happened to other teams. You've got to wear it. And like, I get that to a degree. And like, there's plenty of refereeing things that I see and I sort of go, well, you know, I I see where he's coming from there. I wouldn't have made that call. Um, Origin one, the, the two bow to Teddy Ford pass, you know, I thought that was a 50, 50. I thought, oh, look, I, I thought that was okay, but I see where they're coming from, but you've got to accept that call, even if you think it's wrong. Uh, And there's other calls like that too. But the problem is for me is that there's a line in the sand where you go, look, these are 
you know, mistakes that humans are going to make, or these are 50-50 calls, or these are rubber the green calls that don't go your way. And then there's a line that you eventually get to where you go, that is so egregiously bad that it's beyond all that now. That's a performance issue. And to me, that was such an egregiously bad call that you can't just explain it away to human error or to rubber the green or that's how things go. It was just too bad. You know, it's like a it's like a winger getting the ball on halfway and turning around and running the other way and scoring for the opposition. That's how bad it was to me as far as blatantly terrible performance. So what was your take on it? Cause I'm obviously pretty damning of it. And I don't think that demoting a referee to the bunker this week is really demoting anyone. They've still got a job this week. Oh, and I can imagine the pay scale probably doesn't change whether they're in the middle or in the bunker or, or wherever they are. So it's it's oh look mate I was blown away by it I I tipped the dragons but it's um it didn't make it feel good um and I'm not a Canberra fan my older brother it's a bit of a bit of an interesting story my older brother is a, a Canberra Raiders uh, country member he lives down in um uh, out in the middle of bloody nowhere in, in central New South Wales and works in the mining industry so um he's a mad Canberra Raiders fan and uh, obviously there's a bit of love hate relationship between the Broncos and the Raiders. So, yeah, look, it's um, – but even with talking to him, I, I still just shaking my head. I can't get my head around, like, what the referee was thinking. And there was just – it wasn't just sort of – it was like a calamity of errors that there was um, – I think there was a, a six again that was laid on. Then they, uh, they certainly had all the momentum. And then to be not square at marker – and just kept holding down the play. And you're sort of sitting there thinking, like, surely he's going to blow the whistle. Surely he's going to blow the whistle. And it just seemed to take forever and nothing happened. And then in the end, the hooter went and you went, oh, my God, really? Like, that was just – it was so such poor level of refereeing on a number of different calls that, that certainly could have happened and should have happened that you, you just sat there shaking your head going, surely that did not just happen. He's, has he blown time off? Time off? Like, what, what are they waiting for? And then you realise – no, he's blowing the whistle and that's it. It's all over. It's not, at a, it's not at a professional standard, which is the other point I would make, like where people try and explain it away as, you know, errors that are going to happen or errors that have all... It's not, a profe- it's not a professional enough standard. That is what you'd expect from a fifth-grade referee in how that was managed. And that's just not good enough. You know, Again, I'll, I'll make the um, comparison to a player. If a player performed that badly in a game, He'd be playing New South Wales Cup the next week. And not only that, he'd be lucky to break his way back in the side the next few weeks unless he performed really well. Like it was it was that bad. So I've got a huge problem with that performance. I've got a huge problem with how the NRL have handled it. But we'll talk about the NRL handling a little bit more after we chat about that Penrith Roosters one. But I have to say, it also opened up the bag of worms. It is the six again. When the six again rule got introduced, I was really critical of it a few years ago because when it was first spoken about, the immediate reaction I had was, yeah, but that means that teams can't go for goal. Yeah. You know, and, and like you can all, everybody can say forever and a day, oh, yeah, but it gives you the advantage of, of being able to attack and, and keep the flow and everything. What if you don't want to? Isn't that your isn't that your prerogative as a rugby league team to say, no, actually, I want to go for goal? And that's a lot of points. Like if a team keeps infringing, like if if you, you can talk about how a, a team might get six again heaps of times on a line or, or five different occasions or whatever, but if you swing that and say, well, if this team's not a very good attacking team and they want to take the tactic and when they get those penalties, they convert them. Maybe that's four out of five goals that they're kicking that game, which is eight points. How, how is this rule going to work? 
And then, of course, at the time, it was said, well, the referees will have discretion. And it was this whole discretion, which I hated as an explanation for the rule because it was, well, you know, why should one week this team be able to kick for goal and then the next week when they want to not be able to because it was a six again under discretion, you know. To me, it just it didn't make sense as a rule. We've gone along with it. And this season, as we know, we've wound half of it back where just about half the field, you, you, you do get a penalty anyway. There's no six again. Uh, and then we've still kept it on the other half. Now, we've just had it completely exposed again. And I can't believe the NRL keeps defending it. And just this week, the NRL with Peter Volandis has come out and said, the referees do have discretion. Like they, they admitted it was a mistake, but this whole discretion thing was called again. Tim, I don't remember any time aside from like a professional foul where someone's been sent to the bin. I hardly remember all these whistles for discretion saying, look, I'm going to give you a chance at goal here because there's no point in me giving you a six again. I don't remember any of that happening for discretionary reasons. No, and what's interesting too is, I mean, it, it doesn't even matter what the scoreline is. Like you could sort of say, oh, well, if, if one team's, like if it's a close game, maybe they don't want to give them a penalty. Maybe they just want to give them six again. But then, I mean, even the difference between, I mean, look at, look at what the Storm did to Manly, scoring four tries in the last uh, six minutes. It's, it doesn't seem to matter if one team is up by 20 points or 30 points. I'm sure when a gift two points is, is on the table, you've only got to look at certainly the traditional coaches like, uh, like Bennett and Bellamy. Most of the time they'll go for two, gives their players a rest and, and whatever else. So even being at referee's discretion, I don't think that's good enough. I think it leaves too much grey area for the rule because – what are they going to do? Stop the clock, go to the captain. Mate, what would you like to do? Would you like us to blow six again or would you like us to give you a Which two Which is points? basically the old rule, and, right? Um, you can tap and go or you can take a go. Yeah. Yeah, and, th- and that's just it. I, I would much rather prefer them to go back to either blow the whistle or don't blow the whistle. Yeah, look, I, I agree. And the other thing too with it, like we're talking about a team that was chasing. We've got to remember that there's teams that have lost games the last couple of years that you don't hear anything from because they've lost it in the last eight, nine, ten minutes, where they might have been attacking the line before that up by four points, and they would have happily taken a goal there instead of a six again and gone up by six, or even better, gone up by eight instead of conceding, you know, getting no try and getting no penalty goal attempt and then conceding a try or two in the final ten minutes to lose a game. That's happened several times. And that again comes down to it, right? It's not just that, though. It's then the fact that they can chew up two minutes of the clock while they're getting ready to take the kick. Yeah, well, there's that as well. I mean, look, it's to me, it seems like a really easy fix what happened in this game. And the NRL just, I think the NRL know, but they really are starting to take fans for mugs. And that's how they're starting to treat them, by, by the rhetoric that's coming out there. They're not being honest about it. I know that they have to know in NRL headquarters that it's an issue. And I know that they have to know that it needs to be fixed, but I just think they don't want to repeal it altogether because they don't want to admit it was a mistake. To me, it's really simple, Tim. Okay, The whole reason the six again got brought in was because they wanted the game to be free-flowing. Um, they didn't want um, teams to be giving away penalties. You can fix both those things, just having the old rule and doing the old interpretation change of how you actually do it, right? So hear me out. This is what I would do. I'd change it back to what it was, but I would say it's either a tap or you go for goal, but as soon as that penalty is drawn, is blown, if you want to go for a tap, you get a real quick tap, exactly the same as a play the ball, right? The player is sitting there on the mark anyway. If they want to just tap and keep going, tap and keep going. It's exactly the same as a fast play the ball anyway. 
All you do is eliminate that little time in between of 10, 15 seconds, which used to be there when the penalty was blown. Get rid of that. Allow a proper quick tap within the area that the play of the ball actually was and just play on. That's the first thing. The second thing that that does is obviously allow them to stop and say, no, we're not going to take the quick tap. We're just going to go for goal. And to me, that solves everything. So I don't understand why we try and hold on to things that don't work. And then every off-season you see us change these rules to fix problems that aren't even there. No, I I completely agree, mate. The other thing that that obviously the quick tap does, and they've got to take the grey area out of when they're allowed to take a quick tap and when they're not. You see it half a dozen times a game where the refs will stop the play and they'll call it back and go, no, no, mate, you're not allowed to take a quick tap at this point in time because you're in this part of the field or because of this particular reason. They've got to take all that out. It's... If they've they've put the the six again rule in for that sole purpose of trying to speed everything up, so then take the grey area out of when they're allowed to tap and they're not allowed to tap. At any stage when there's a penalty blown, you can either take the tap, take it however which way you like it. As long as it touches your foot and you run, then that's fine. Uh, take the tap, have a kick or or shot at goal. It's just going to fix a lot of areas. I, I understand why they've tried to do it. They've tried to speed things up. They've tried to get. Um, get the the backs into the game more and and try to find some of the player fatigue and things like that. But look, at the moment, mate, like we've said, it's just not working and they need to bite the bullet and just change it. Whether or not the issue is that it's too hard to change in the middle of the season and they don't want to do that, but surely it's only a case of sending a, a notice out to the clubs that says, look, we understand that this is an issue. We're trying to find a way to fix it. This is how we're going to fix it. And it's not as if they have to go, right, then we, they don't even have to say, right, we're going to completely take six agains out of it. They could still use it. But for the majority of the time from now on, we're going to blow a penalty. And then when we blow the penalty, you can have your choice of whatever you want to do. Yeah, they put themselves in a really hard spot. And that Canberra-St. George game, you know, that's a regular season game. If this happens in this year's finals, it's going to be really sad. And it's going to be sad for rugby league. And there's a good chance that it will happen. It's It's just... Really simple, what I said before, fixes everything. And you make a really good point with being able to take the quick tap. You know what's really funny? Um, They pull back the quick tap because you're not on the mark and it's an arbitrary rule that's been there for 100 years. Who cares if if you're within a metre from the mark? Who really cares? Kickers mark mark on the ground where they're going to kick from where the mark is and step three metres over it. You don't get kicks pulled back to kicks for touch and stuff. Like, who really cares? And the second thing with it as well is, you're pulling guys back because they're in front of the play when a quick tap is taken, so they can't be part of the play. But when a quick play, the ball happens, and you have Fords, you know, languishing in front of the play, you've just got a downtown rule for that. And the downtown rule, you know, you, you can't be involved in that play. And you get you, we've seen tries pulled up several times this year where it's like, oh no, the, the guy was the, the player was in front of the play, so he's he's not allowed to take part in the play, and he didn't. It's a penalty. So why do we have that downtown rule then? where it's there for a play the ball, but it's not actually there for the quick tap, you know, because we're going to stop the quick tap because you've got to do it when someone's behind you. You know, it's the same thing. It, it makes no sense. And I think that the NRL have just gotten it terribly wrong as a rule. But the Penrith Roosters game had different issues. Uh, I thought the Roosters played really well the first half uh, and they should have been leading Penrith at the half, in my opinion. But there was that tackle call on, I think it was Sam Verrill's, that he's tackled him low and actually ended up squatting on the ground 
and basically got steamrolled, right? Like I, I said to the guys I was watching it with, I was like, that's like an under eights game, right? Where you have the big kid running the little kid and he just gets run over, but he, he's real tough and he just hangs on, you know, and he gets steamrolled and the guy goes front forward over him. That was just a normal tackle. Uh, yet we get this penalty on a, on a dangerous tackle that then ends up seeing Kikau with 45 seconds left, Penrith get the ball and Kikau ends up scoring right on the buzzer to give Penrith a, a, a really handy lead at the half that the Roosters ended up fighting back from and leading in the last 10 minutes only to end up you know conceding an eight-point loss. That was a big turning point in the game. I, I'm not going to say that the Roosters would have won if that didn't happen because that's not the case and I get that. But it again falls into the basket the same as the Dragons and Raiders game where that call was just so egregiously bad that it just can't happen in professional rugby league, let alone the best competition in the world. Yeah, look, it was a, it was definitely a, a contentious one. We're obviously in the the Podmasters chat group, and generally, it's uh, it's uh, the conversations tick over faster than you can type stuff in there during game day and uh, and during the eighty minutes of each game of footy. But yeah, mate, it was just amazing the blow up of of everybody, and we we all seem to agree on it. How on earth was was that a, a penalty? And and that's exactly what it looked like. My young bloke plays under sevens, uh, and it just looked like a big kid just steamrolled over the top of, of a little kid, and it, it was just play on. It's um, yeah. Look, I, I don't know. It's they, they just seem to be making so many mistakes at the moment. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, and we need to talk about the NRL's response because I, I, you know, that's the thing that I'm most disappointed in. Like, and I, I think that these responses from the NRL in many ways actually contribute to the referee performance. Like we, we've all known people in jobs that we've had and we've all played sport before. And you know that, you know, in a job, if you've got a couple of slackers that you work with, if the boss doesn't recognise it or makes excuses for them, what are they going to do? They're going to keep slacking off. And even the good workers are going to start to a little bit and drop their standards in a sporting arena. You know, whether you're playing you know, amateur sport or whatever, if you've got a soft coach that's just saying, oh, no, it's all right. You know, Barnsley's missing 10 tackles a game. Maybe he's trying. You know, it's it's not his fault. It's, you know, it's going okay. You know, it was a mistake, but it's all right. You know, I'm going to miss 10 tackles the next week too because I really have no motivation and no push to actually be better. And that's happening at the moment in the NRL, and it has been for years now. And that's part of why we're seeing the standard that we're seeing. The NRL is not demanding a good enough standard from the referees. And I really hate seeing Annesley get up there and defend things that he shouldn't be defending, but then also say the referees got it wrong. Like, I think that at the start it was sort of looked upon positively where Annesley actually admitted mistakes, whereas nobody ever did before. But it's gotten a bit old now, right? You know, it's like the get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly. There's only a few in the deck. You can't use 75 of them. So we're over it now. There's no more left. You can't keep saying they made some mistakes and, and get over it sort of thing. And likewise, Vlandy's, like I said, I was shocked where he said there's nothing wrong with the six again rule. They've got discretion. Uh, they can do that. The refereeing standard's fine. Like, it's just all it's just all spin now and rhetoric that is, I think, called out by a lot of fans at the moment, but we're not seeing any action from the NRL or even the respect to acknowledge it there needs to be. Going out on a bit of a limb left field here, mate, I, I can imagine, well, I'm only assuming the fact that maybe there's just not enough other referees that are qualified to ref a game at that level, perhaps. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, this is just throwing ideas out there now. I know just with education, we're at the moment where um, we're really short staff with teachers at, just at my school on a regular basis. We're missing 25 to 30 teachers. We've still got to have teachers standing in front of a class 
but we can't just shut classes down for a day or a lesson because there's obviously not enough staff available for the day. Uh, school's got to keep going on and, and we've got to have someone there or, or we just find a way. Maybe it's the same thing with referees at the moment. Maybe there's just not enough quality referees or the calibre's not there. Maybe there's not enough training, not enough professional development. I, I don't know what it is, but these blokes seem to be keeping their jobs game in, game out. I mean, we, we've got female referees that want to have a crack and that certainly seem to be qualified, but they still just don't seem to be getting the, the, the job in the middle. I don't, I don't get it. I think it's a really good point, Tim, and I think it's a much wider point where the NRL, I think, has been caught with their pants down a little bit, where they actually have not invested enough in the refereeing ranks. Um, I know that some of the old referees, even ones that weren't necessarily good, but they were full-time experienced referees, have ended up out in the cold. And, you know, it's just, I think the NRL's tried to be cheap. And, th- and this is also the argument as well with people saying, oh, you need two referees again. You know, that's that, that's that been heavy on NRL 360 yeah. the past week. I hated the two referees. It created its oh, own set of problems. And, yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, like, you see other professional competitions, like the Super League, that haven't needed them. And to me, you've got a referee and you've got two touch judges and, and you've got a bunker there. If you need a second referee, you should retire the competition you're running because you can't run a competition. You know, you've got enough there. You know, it's like someone saying, oh, 13 players isn't enough. Give us another five. We need 18. You know, if you can't win with 13 on the field, then you're not going to win with 18 either because you're not any good. So start doing a good enough job and it will be fine. We don't need these elaborate fixes of having another referee. But the big thing that I raise with it, Tim, though, is that we already don't have enough referees in the ranks. Imagine the type of standard we're going to get if you double the referees each week that are on games. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right. Mate, I, I could imagine part of the problem is probably the fact that because of COVID, we obviously haven't had any Q Cup or New South Wales Cup. I'm assuming you guys call it New South Wales Cup down there um, for the last two or three years as well. So I dare say experience-wise, um, the next step down, obviously haven't had a job for the last three years. So that probably is part of the problem, that even at Clubland A-grade referees, um, that's as far as they've been able to go because there's no step then between A grade at a club level uh, and then up to the Q Cup and New South Wales Cup, um, then obviously the step to the NRL. So maybe that's part of the problem, that that because of everything shutting down for the last few years, that, that they haven't had that experience there and that number of referees coming through the system. It is definitely a part of the problem. I 100% agree with you. I think it's a fantastic point. And it's definitely there, you know, and like it, it does split opinion a little bit about, you know, having the three grades play like you were 25 years ago and all this stuff. But one of the things that it did do is that it had referees involved in game day and referees that were, you know, like there's still obviously, you know, Jersey flag and stuff and whatever, although there wasn't for a, a while during COVID. But those type of games, um, it was like a real first grade, second grade, third grade type of arena. And now you've got the NRLW as well. Like, if it was under the old structure, I think that you would see a lot more ability to be able to drop refs and also elevate refs from, say, third grade to second grade and this sort of stuff. I don't think the succession planning has been there from the NRL. I don't think the leadership or even the care for the refereeing has been there for the NRL. And that's also feeling sorry for the refs because they're they're under immense pressure and they're not being managed well. And that might leak into their performance and they certainly have something to answer for some of the performances. But a lot of it's the management of the NRL to me. And I'm, I'm really scathing on that because it should be better. You know, you cannot be performing at the level that we are because it's a bit of a joke being the best competition in the world for rugby league and skimping on something like officials or not having the forethought 
to be able to plan and have succession planning. And I'll finish off by saying it is 100% proven by the fact that if you're a referee, you basically have to get a baseball bat out and start kneecapping players to get dropped at the moment because they call the guys on the weekend being dropped. They're, they're sitting in the bunker. They're still a referee in the bunker. They're still on TV. <laughs> like, they're not being dropped. What sort of punishment is that? You know, it's like saying... Uh, they, can still, they can still make the same level of mistakes at key moments in the bunker. Oh, that's, um, that's the thing too, right? Like, how, you how made such a bad mistake mistakes. last week, Tim, that you can go in the bunker and adjudicate the tries instead. Yeah, and that's that's the worst part. Like, you see some of the decisions coming from the bunker and you're scratching your head. Like, some of them are just blatant and they stand there for two minutes and look at 16 different camera angles and you're going, oh, my God. Like, there was one last weekend. I can't remember specifically which one it was, but it seemed to take two minutes and they looked at every different camera angle just to go, he dropped the ball. And he went, but we saw that he dropped the ball in the first play. Like, why <laughs> well, there's an Edric Lee try it? that was pretty controversial too. Oh, it's like let's let's get a little bit more um, uh, KFC merch in there on the big screen or something or other at the time. It's um, It just blows me away, mate. I, I guess it always comes back to the theory that it's like if you want to play better tennis, play with better tennis players. If you want to play better rugby league, play with better rugby league players. So maybe refereeing's the same. If you want to become a better referee, you've got to referee games at the highest level. And I guess going back to what I said before, maybe just those steps down below the NRL haven't been there. So the, they haven't had those quality of referees being able to ref at the highest level and gain that extra experience. But, yeah, mate, the level of mistakes that they've been making are just um, – it's unforgivable. And especially now with the amount of money that's involved in gambling and, um, I mean, look at the Supercoach product itself. I mean, it's 50 grand on the line that if uh, one of those decisions can can make the difference at the end of the season. If someone misses out on uh, on winning 50K because they're a, a line break short or a try assist short or something like that um, because the try has been knocked back that should have been given or vice versa – it's. I mean, that's that makes a huge difference to to other things that are still football related. It's all still part of the product that they sell. People are making money out of it. Um, so yeah, when it's a, an absolute blunder on the field, well, in the middle of the field, um, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think to finish up on it with these type of calls, these type of calls aren't acceptable. But mistakes are acceptable and they're always going to be there. In any sport, in the best leagues in the world or whatever, referees are going to make some mistakes or they're going to make some decisions that you're not going to agree with. And that's totally fine. I think the thing is that they have to be within a reasonable margin of error. And that's something that we don't really see transparently from the NRL as well. And also, you have to be, if you're confident that everything in that league is structured to a matter that you're getting the best possible referees and the best possible performance, you live with it because you're like, look, you know, this is a great league. It does everything for the referees to make sure they're the best that we can get. They are really good. They're really professional. And if they are doing those things, you would expect that the mistakes actually drop and they're not as bad and you don't get the clangers. You're still going to get mistakes. We're not seeing that. So there's clearly things wrong. And I really throw the gauntlet down to the NRL. You should be treating referees like you do coaches and players. You know, coaches and players have development pathways. They get a huge amount put into it from young from a young age, right? Like if you have a 16, 17-year-old gun player, you're developing them through a pathway that's going to get them to an NRL level and going to get their performance better and up to standard. And one day they're going to be one of the professionals of the league and maybe even a star of the league. You can transplant that word player with referee and do exactly the same thing. And that's how it should be. And that's where I think the NRL is completely missing the boat on getting the standards right in the NRL. And it's why we saw a clanger. 
that cost the Raiders. And it's why we saw a clagger that might have cost the Roosters as well on the weekend. Let's move along. Uh, next topic at hand, exciting times. Origin. Now, we've got the Origin 2 result to quickly discuss because we didn't get a chance to talk about it with no podcast last week. It's not going to be a comfortable one for you, Tim, so I'll apologise. It's the wrong one to come in for. Maybe after Game 3, for you, it would have been better. But, you know, Game 2, 44 to... I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced Game 3 is going to be much better, mate, but that's a whole other story. Oh, right, so. well, I'm glad. I'm glad from a Queenslander that I can gain a bit of confidence with that. But 44 to 12, the Blues won. Uh, and it was, you know, a, a very comprehensive performance. Um, the the Blues completed at 88%, which was huge. Um, they ended up with a 60-40 possession, which really made a big difference. Um, but 56 mixed, missed tackles for the Maroons. You know, New South Wales missed 23. Nine errors for the Maroons, New South Wales five. New South Wales actually conceded more penalties with eight compared to the Maroons five. So, it was just a comprehensive performance when we're, we're talking about the players and let's start off with that. Cause it's, that's the positive thing. Uh, Nathan Cleary, what a great bounce back performance from him. Stats wise. I don't even think it does his, him justice. He had two line breaks, two tries, two try assists and one line break assist. Only missed one tackle for the game and only had one error. Uh, that was one of the top halfback performances in recent memory. Um, but it made such a difference because it was such a huge bounce back from his poor performance in game one, which is what I was expecting from him, even though I was critical of his performance in game one. Yeah, look, absolutely, mate. He, he'd made a massive difference. The you, You're comparing apples and oranges when you look at his game one performance in relation to his game two performance. Uh, game one, obviously, they, um, they obviously changed the game plan with the block plays and things like that to make sure that he had more time on the ball to, to get rid of the kick. But just his kicking game in general was just absolute chalk and cheese. The the way that he kicked the ball in game one was um, oh, was horrendous. It, it looked like watching a, an under eights game that kids had, that have forgotten how to kick a ball. Um, would then compare that to to game two and just absolute massive difference. He, he certainly um, he certainly took the pressure and um, and and ran with it. Back three from New South Wales are really good in game one, but they need another shout out for game two. Brian Toto. 26 runs, 260-plus metres. Tubo, 20 runs, over 200 metres as well. And then James Tedesco as well, uh, 25 runs, 10 tackle breaks, and 260 metres. Uh, that, that back three really shone as well. But one guy that I'll pinpoint as a difference maker, Matt Burton being included. You know, his stats don't look as good. Um, he did have the try, um, which was a good one. But his kicks coming in and, and taking five kicks, just those five kicks taking the pressure off Cleary and some of those kicks really caused problems for the back three for the Maroons. That was a master stroke from Fittler to throw him into the centres. I think a lot of us thought um, when, you know, after game one that there was going to be guys like maybe a Campbell Graham thrown in, um, even, you know, this week for game three, a Whiten thrown in. But putting Burton in was a little bit left field. Um, I think you were speaking about it as a bench utility before Origin started, maybe. But he was a masterstroke, and I thought he was a big difference maker as well. And I do need to apologise to uh, the Jake Travoyevich tragics. I still, you know, would have been comfortable with him not playing Origin, but he played much better in that Origin game than what he has all year or even the last two years for the Manly side. Um, 31 tackles, but more so my, my worry with him was always he doesn't run the ball. Um, and he had 17 runs and actually made uh, half-decent metres for those runs with almost 150. So um, he had a very good performance too, much better than what his club form has been. 
Yeah, look, I spoke about those two last two issues in particular, or those those two points in particular I spoke about on the Tragics podcast um, about three weeks ago. Uh, well, actually before, before uh, well, straight after game two when they started making the changes or talked about the changes, um, or after game one, I should say. But, yeah, the, the Burton one, I thought straight away, obviously after game one they realised that, that Cleary's issue was was with the kicking, that we obviously Queensland played him out of the game by getting to him faster. They put two things in place. One was add a centre who can kick. Um, and let's be honest, Burton's, <laughs> Burton's spiral bombs. Uh, I think there's, there's not a, a fullback in the NRL that when he gets the ball and kicks those spirals bombs, don't at some point close their eyes and just hope for the best. Because uh, I've got no doubt that I'd certainly be doing the same thing. But you watch you watch the ball, it moves all over the place. So obviously the first thing they did was put a centre in that can kick the ball. Um, how effective it was when he played uh, in the centres for the Panthers, they obviously ran with the same gameplay. The second thing was putting in Jake Trebojevic. He makes uh, a massive difference to Daly Cherry Evans' game at Manly uh, with regards to DCE's kicking game. And these are the, the two points that I made on the pod a few weeks ago, that he he just blocks. He, he's that person that just before Cherry kicks, he moves in behind Turbo uh, or Burbo, I should say, Gerbo, third time lucky. Um, and that's what his job is, is to stop the running play, running play come through. It's like what they do in the NFL and they've done it for 100 years. He's the bloke that stands in front of the quarterback to make sure that the quarterback doesn't get sacked. Uh, and that's what what Gerbo's job is, Put, making those two adjustments to the team. Um, as soon as I saw the players that they were bringing in, that well and truly swayed me to tip in New South Wales. It, it it fixed both their biggest problems from game one. Yeah, and it really did. Like I, I said in my predictions for this game that I thought New South Wales had a lot more points in them, uh, and I thought that they fixed the, the kicking issues. I thought that they also picked a starting side and a pack that was going to be able to get the quick play of the balls. And I also thought as well that um, Queensland only won by six and they didn't have many more points in them. So all that, I don't mean to, you know, <laughs> toot my horn. I'm certainly wrong on other predictions, but I think everything that I thought actually came to fruition. Before we look at the Queensland team, we do need to take a quick break just to talk about the fantastic sponsor of the All-Stars podcast in Top Sport topsport.com.au you can go over there have a look or just download the really easy to use app and away you go they're a 100% Australian owned betting company and they're also a betting company that often has best odds in market as well not just in sport also in racing too and if you like your fantasy sports like Supercoach you got fantasy point scoring you can bet on too which is fantastic it's not Supercoach scoring but it's pretty similar you can jump on there and have a look but State of Origin coming up which we're talking about right now $1.65 for the Blues, minus two and a half points. I like that one. That's my top sport bit of the week. But actually, gamble responsibly. But if you're going to create an account, make sure you use our promo code. That is SC All Stars, all one word. Put that in when you create an account, and they'll know you're one of our listeners and take great care of you. But topsport.com.au, best betting agency in Australia. Go get on them today. On the Queensland side of things, um, you know, the back three was pretty concerning. They, they didn't do much at all. You know, there was like 19 runs between Tuolangi and and um, and Cobbo, and I think they got a taste of what it's like um, with the Origin pressure when the other team's actually really on top of you. Um, but really, they needed that spine to really fire for Queensland for for them to get any points or have any chance, and they didn't. And the forward pack as well, I thought was. Very disappointing. Um, and I think 
you know, not to be New South Wales bias, um, and you know, you, you can even be out here being a Queenslander, but I, I, I felt like New South Wales had a much better chance of improving immensely on the game one performance, whereas I don't know where Queensland go from here. Um, and that's you know, probably a good time to talk about game three now, where, you know, I, I'm, I don't know how much better Queensland can be. Like, certainly they can be better, but I'm not sure how much they've got in them. Before we do talk about that in game three, we do need to talk about the controversial topic, though, because some Queenslanders have certainly blamed this on the loss, which I, I think that when you lose 44 to 12 is a bit disappointing. I know that it's, you know, a turning point, um, certainly, and it does give momentum, but obviously Kafusi got sent to the sin bin. Um, and to me, it was very cut and dried. Like there was multiple infringements and often what happens if it's been called well, is that if you have a team continuously giving away six against and having infringements and, and you know, visibly struggling to get back with 10 or, or to get off the tackles and stuff, it's because the other team is playing them into that. And I thought that was 100% the case. You know, New South Wales were too strong and they were getting too many quick play of the balls and they were attacking too much and running the Queensland defence all over the place that it meant that Queensland was struggling and that's why the six against were happening. And rightly so, they were starting to try and slow it down again. Now, to me, there was many infringements leading up to that sin bin and attacking the line there, you know, it's it, it almost is like the Ben Hunt flop. Like the Kafusi one, he actually gets up from the tackle with his arms still on the player and then pushes him down with two hands in front of the referee. Like it could not have been more blatant. So I applaud the referee for making that call because it's always going to be a tough one in an origin arena like that to make that type of call. And I think it's absolutely rubbish. Um, some of the commentators and, and, and media pundits saying that it shouldn't be called like that in origin. You, ha- you have to have a line where you have to call that sort of stuff. And that to me was blatant. It was fair. And Queensland only had themselves to blame for it. I, I don't disagree with the, um, with the sending off uh, in that certainly after you're given so many I wouldn't say warnings because at no stage did the ref come out and go one more, then we'll send you. Um, but the the six agains, as we know now, and the way that they're trying to officiate the game is that once you get past three six agains, then you've just got to expect it. If there's one more issue, that someone's going to walk. I think the the discretionary issue, I think, was more so the fact that, um, I mean, even Gus, and Gus is as buddy blue-eyed as there is, uh, the fact that he was going, look, I couldn't understand what some of the six agains were given for, that they just didn't seem to, once he, once he gave the first one and the second one, it just seemed to snowball really fast. And don't get me wrong, that's absolutely the, the way that the game was playing. Uh, the end result was Felice Cafusi getting sent off, which, yeah, after you get six, six agains go against you, sooner or later the ref's going to go, enough's enough. But I think the issue was more so that everyone was scratching their heads going, what were the continuous six against for? You could look at some of them and go, yep, okay, fair enough. But the fact that it just kept going one after another, after another, after another, um, I think that was the issue more so that a lot of the commentators were getting upset about. There wasn't a need to blow six again for some of those points. Um, so Yeah, yeah and that's probably, a, that's probably a fair point too. And, I, and like, I'll concede that. Um, because, you know, you could argue that maybe the six again should be not as many. Um, I think that the problem with that was that they went too far overboard in allowing um, Queensland to have that um, type of game in game Mm -hmm. one. That And and this, you know, people will disagree with me on this and that's fine. It shows Billy Slater's inexperience as a coach because he should have seen 
geez, we got away with a lot in game one. Um, it's been a topic in the media. There's no way they're going to call the game the same. And, you know, much like, you know, people were happy to criticise Brad Fittler for not being prepared for that to happen in game one, and that might be right. But really, Slater was not prepared for that to happen in game two, and he should have been because everybody in his dog knew that there was no way the game was going to be called that leniently in game two. And the other thing too is that, you know, I, I found it funny that Billy Slater was being applauded by a lot of fans and some of the media, but, you know, it's great that he didn't say anything about the refereeing. You know, he's, he's being really professional, unlike Fittler. Fittler showed his experience by saying exactly what happened, um, but it's not whinging. You know, Fittler knows that if he raises that and it's in the publicity, that there's a lot of pressure on the referees and that's what you need to do. And especially if you think that it's not being called right, that's what you need to do. I think Billy Slater will learn a lot from this series because I reckon next time he will not only prepare his side and recognise that it could be very different game to game, but he'll also recognise that if you've got grievances or problems with how a game's called or or how it's refereed, then you should probably vocalise it as a coach because that's the way that it gets heard and it gets recognised and you do see sometimes some changes. Yeah, and look, that's an interesting point too. The, the fact that obviously he's an NRL commentator, you would think that somebody who's used to uh, talking about the game as often and, and to the extent that, that he is, that he would have come out and, and said more about it since the end of game two. And that just hasn't seemed to have happened. So it's um it's an interesting point that, yeah, look, absolutely. Freddie's been around a, a little bit more than what Billy has, obviously. And he's obviously, uh, after game one, brought it to the attention with the media. I mean, it was already in there anyway, so it was neither here nor there. But he certainly made sure that that was something that was talked about. Um, I, yeah, I guess you you sort of would have expected after game two for, for Bill himself to come out and, and talk a bit more about it and to sort of say this is something that, that we want to make sure that that, that playing field gets levelled out or however he words it, I guess, is um, it's up to him. But, yeah, look, it, it is an interesting point. Um, it will be interesting. It'll be interesting again to see how game three is officiated um, and, and whether or not they, they let him slow it back down again. Because it, it just seemed, it certainly seemed like there was, um, there was there was one way of doing it in game one, and then a completely different way of doing it in game two. And they've either got to find the middle ground or go, look, this is how it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I'm not bad mouthing Billy either. Like, I wouldn't expect a coach that's just coaching his first two games no. ever to be any better than no, that. Right. Um, you know, so it's Billy's done a fine job. Um, every coach that's starting out is going to learn, and he will learn from it because he's a smart guy. And he's a good operator, yeah. but it definitely um, was there. And, you know, New South Wales fans have short memories. Queenslanders also have short memories too. <laughs> Both fan bases are yeah. very similar in that regard. Kevin Walters very much was not going to be quiet at any point when <laughs> he wasn't happy about anything. And he, didn't, he isn't for the Broncos either, you know. So it's all yeah. well and good to say, oh, you know, Billy was doing the right thing. Yeah, Walters was doing the right thing by speaking up when he was at the helm before. And now Meninga, to a lesser extent, used to a little bit as well. Like that's that's coaching experience right there. I think that's the plus of being a three-game series as well, that it's not like, um, I mean, we know Ricky Stewart likes to have a massive spat at referees and someone pays his bills for him after every round. Uh, but Robbo has certainly been out, very outspoken this season as well, a lot differently to how he has been in the past. And obviously that's reflecting through through the games and the culture and the attitude at the Roosters at the moment. It's um, it's a very different Trent Robinson that we've seen this season in comparison to past seasons uh, with regards to losing his cool at the referees. Um, and it's it's not hard to see that maybe that's part of the reason uh, 
culture reasons and, and backdoor discussions and things like that, maybe that's part of why the roosters aren't clicking as well as we're so used to seeing them. Yeah, very true. Very true. Um, when we're talking about the um, selections for Billy Slater for game three, um, I'm interested in a Queenslander's viewpoint on this because I was quite surprised with some of them. And, and in a way, like, you know, I don't want to hassle or, or be negative about some of the selections because one of the things that I think Queenslanders and, and overall rugby league fans, including New South Welshmen, need to remember is that uh, Queensland probably do- doesn't have the depth in some positions that maybe New South Wales have at their disposal. So maybe guys that you would think, you know, maybe should have been dropped, you don't have much choice in some of those. But one of the big ones that I thought, wow, was Jeremiah Nanai, I thought was, uh, I wouldn't have picked him for game one. And I've seen nothing to suggest that I was wrong with that assertion. And he's now gone from the bench to starting in Kafusi's edge role, where you'd assume he's going to be playing there for 80 minutes. He had a terrible defensive decision in game two that led to a try along with Dane Gagai. Uh, and he also, I just didn't think, had much impact across the series so far. You've got someone like Fafita that came back last week and to me is talented enough where you just go, he's probably, the, I would argue he's the most talented forward that Queensland have. If you're that desperate to fill a, a back row spot, how are you not just putting David Fafita in the side? So that was, you know, the first one for me that really stuck out. I, I would have actually dropped Nanai and he's been elevated to start in the back row. So as a Queenslander, how did you see that one? Yeah, look, I absolutely agree, mate. And the the thing I was gonna, the point I was going to make was was depth, and I think that's our biggest issue. The the squad that we've put together this year is certainly a different squad to what we've had before, because I I just I don't think the depth is there. Um, I mean, if we had if we had half a dozen injuries or something like that, I think we'd really struggle to to replace them with the the same quality. And then obviously the scoreline's going to reflect that. And don't get me wrong, I know that there's it's different playing origin and, and pride in the jersey and taking the taking the representative honours with uh, with both hands and having a crack. And I totally get all of that. But yeah, mate, absolutely. If I think we would really struggle if we lost half a dozen players overnight, then I think we would struggle to fill them with with anything similar calibre. And I think that would be in in most of our positions. Um, I mean, we've just gone through a, a generational, obviously, drop-off of all the big stars. But then you look at other guys as well who are still playing. Like, look at Josh Maguire. He doesn't get a look in anymore. Jared Wallace doesn't get a look in anymore. Those guys have been playing for a long time, and they're still playing in the NRL. But just the, the fact that there's a big gap now between the best and, and the next best, I guess. As for Nanai, yeah, look, I the Nanai versus Fafita, I guess it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Supercoach in that when you come up in a head-to-head game and you go, uh, the other bloke's team scares the bejesus out of me. Uh, he might not have scored really well last week, but he could put on an extra three hundred points with the squad that he's got. It's a similar sort of thing. I I would have Fafita over Nanai every day of the week, even if Fafita is has not been uh, playing as well as he could. I think he's one of those blokes that you get him into that Origin arena, and all of a sudden he grows another foot. Uh, taller and another foot wider. Um, I think he's just a, an unbelievable footballer. And I think the problems that we were talking about earlier with regards to the Titans, I think that's a big part of the problem. If players aren't happy, they're not going to play good football. I mean, the bloke got taken from his preferred left, left-hand left side position, shoved over on the right, and then no one gave him the ball. So he played the first two-thirds of the season, or the first third of the season, I should say, before his injury, where he barely touched the ball. And don't get me wrong, of course, he's a rep player and he's the kind of player that should go in looking for the ball as well. 
But when you get used all the time as a cutout player as well, it starts to chip away at you after a while and you go, oh, fuck it. If no one else is going to bother, then why should I bother? So I think I think the point of him missing out on origin, I think it kicks him in the balls a little bit harder even. Um, probably not the kick in the ass that he needed to maybe push a bit harder. But, I mean, he, he was playing um, – he, he played last weekend – with the sole mission of trying to make it so that he could prove that he was fit enough to come and, and help us out and didn't really work for it. And I, like, I'll go one step further too and say, look, you can always look at things a little bit differently um, just to see how it looks. And one of the ways that you can look at it too is that, you know, often I think the good coaches do this really well, but often as fans especially, but even some of the poorer coaches will will look at um, someone's performance and say, look, they've been playing average this year. They're not in form. And that's something that you could definitely say about Fafita. Whereas some of the good coaches might actually look at that and say, actually, I don't really care because I can see that he's not getting any opportunity or any ball and he's just playing in a really poor side. And I actually think that he would thrive in a good side that I've got here in the Queensland side and actually thrive to actually play with a bit of different scenery with some different players in a different arena. So I would actually look at um, Fafita like that, to be honest. I actually think that with how he's been used, the sort of season he's had and being around the Titans who are at the bottom, he's good enough on merit anyway, just on, on talent just to get in. But I actually think that he would explode in an origin game. And we talked about Nanai. The other change as well is that Tom Gilbert is, is in Jersey 17. Now, if you don't want to start David Fafita and there's an edge back grower, then please someone explain to me how, all respect to Tom Gilbert, he's a solid NRL player. He's a bit of an up-and-comer a little bit, you know, but he's nowhere near an origin an origin forward for me, especially when you're saying, look, we don't want to start for feeder, but let's put him in Jersey 17 and he can just come off the bench for stints and see how that goes. Like how you can think that Tom Gilbert is a better selection. Uh, I, I will never understand that. And I do think that the forward pack for Queensland is a real vulnerability for them at the moment, especially what we saw last game. And that might come back to bite you guys now that you're leaving someone like for feeder out to put, you know, Tom Gilbert and, and Nano in. Mate, you've only got to think about it. <laughs> Look at it in a different way. If New South Wales score two tries in the first 10 minutes or something like that, it's obviously very hypothetical. But then to go, oh, shit, let's change something. Um, let's put Tom Gilbert on. And you go, well, is he the kind of player that's going to bust through a whole heap of tackles, going to run over the top of some little bloke, run 30 metres and then score a try? Uh, not really. He's not the kind of bloke that's going to lift a team. Don't get me wrong, he's he's a decent up-and-comer and he's done really well for, for what he's had to do this season at the Cowboys. But I can't imagine... I mean, you, you look at the Cowboys. Would they would they not pick Tom Alolo and then put Tom Gilbert in the same place? Don't be ridiculous. And that's basically what they've done with um, with with Fafita. Yeah. That's crazy. That's like a good in, comparison. In origin, you, you want to have that scary bloke that's going to be there. And, I mean, David Fafita, he, he doesn't wear a number 13, but I think he plays as well as, as any other number 13 in the comp when he's playing on, on a good day. Um, he's got all the same attributes. He can play the ball. Um, I mean, obviously not play the ball, but he's a, he's a ball player. Um, he, he's got the offload. He's got the, the tackle-busting machine that he is. It just it it absolutely blows me away. It is it the is it the issue that the Cowboys have been playing so well, so more of their players deserve a spot, um, or is it a case of the Titans are playing so poorly that maybe none of their players deserve a spot? Like it's I don't know. I don't get the logic either way. 
Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll go a step further as well and expand on my Billy Slater comments before. And they're going to come off negative. And again, I'll, I'll reiterate, I don't mean it to be. Billy Slater isn't meant to be a ready-made coach yet. He's going to learn. And these are the type of things he's going to learn from. But one of the things that I think Fittler actually gets uh, criticised for is actually a positive because Fittler will very much, you saw it in game two, he will change his side, even with players that you don't think should be there, to fix problems, to fix things that he knows his team needs to do to win a football game. And Billy Slater isn't thinking like that. And he needs to start to, and I'm sure that he will eventually, because you need to think like that as a coach. It's not just the, that the name value that someone has. It's not just how you like how someone plays in their club side. It's what do I need here? What, what, what was I missing in that game two loss? What do I need in game three to get me a win for that not to happen again? And one of the first things that I would say if I'm Queensland is I, I've scored 16 and 12 points the first two games and it is against the New South Wales side with a lot of points in them. One of the things that I need, not the only one, is I need points. I need to be able to score. I need to be able to break down the New South Wales defence and get points on the board because if I score 16 or 12 points this game, I don't think I'm going to win a series. And Tom Gilbert's not going to rip up and score points. David Fafita scored three tries in a game many times. He is a try scorer and he's an attacking player. And even when he doesn't score tries, he scatters a defensive line. It's going to create holes elsewhere. And Queensland's big strength is that they've got a fantastic spine to use. Arguably a better spine than New South Wales when you're looking at it holistically on Kalen Ponga, Daly Cherry Evans, Munster and Grant, you could easily argue that's a better spine than New South Wales have. So to have that room and, and that attacking weapon in your forward pack, it's going to create a, a huge difference. Uh, so again, I, I just think the mentality is all wrong because guys like Gilbert aren't going to fix the problems that you had. Um, and even starting someone like Nanai, the other thing I would say is, well, how did New South Wales score 44 points? We had some really poor defensive efforts. Nanai had some of those poor defensive efforts. Um, even a guy like Dane Gagai had some of those poor defensive efforts. Dane Gagai has been someone who's been better on the wing before. Uh, and maybe that helps him being on the wing. You know, these are some of the questions I just don't think that Queensland asked. I think that they kind of took the easy way here and just went, no, nah, we're going to go on that whole Queensland thing of loyalty and believing in our side and stuff. Maybe that'll work because you do have the talent and the spine for it too. But I, I tend to think that you haven't made the changes that maybe you could have, even just little subtle ones. Yeah, ab- absolutely, mate. I think it's um, certainly not to be underestimated as well. The other change, big change that Freddie made was with Appy Coruscant. I think that's they basically pulled a Queensland on Queensland. Yep. Had essentially two hookers in the game uh, and a lot of the time had two hookers on the field. Uh, just the, the little whip, it runs out of dummy half. But it also meant that it didn't only have to be Harry Grant going to hooker, or it didn't only have to be Ben Hunt going to hooker. All of a sudden, especially with Hunt being a halfback that he is as well, it meant that they could essentially have four attacking players on the field at the same time. The ball could have gone any which direction. And obviously that's that's what the difference was in game two, where New South Wales adopted the same tactic. Uh, but then they threw Burton into the mix as well. So all of a sudden you've got five hookers, halfbacks, five eights, whatever's all in the middle of the field. The ball could go fucking anywhere and anything could happen. So it, it certainly had Queensland questioning all the time that you were sort of worried about which direction it was going to go, but then was the bloke beside you quality enough to make the tackle or or, um, or to, to read the play? And, mate, we, we certainly had our pants pulled down in that second half, that's for sure. Let's talk about the New South Wales changes quickly. Uh, I'll say outright one of the ones I really didn't like was Jordan McLean being put in, um, and I didn't think that he was going to. But in saying that, he's now been injured. And I like even uh, 
I was going to say less, but probably as badly. I like Jacob Savidi coming in. I don't think that's good. Um, and I think that's an advantage for Queensland. But I guess I will say that, um, you know, Regan Campbell-Gillard was probably the only other real option. David Clemmers obviously had his card stamps and not play Origin anymore. He's got a slow play of the ball, which Fittler doesn't like and fine. Um, so I, I didn't like that, but I don't, I think the New South Wales have enough strength in their pack as a real strength for theirs compared to Queensland that they, it won't matter too much. But I, I definitely didn't like the pick. Um, a lot of people didn't like that Whiten didn't get picked in his 18th man. I, I tend to, you know, I, I initially thought I want Whiten in the team because he was phenomenal in game one and he's been a good origin player for the Blues. But the more thought that I gave it after the team was picked, the more I sort of thought, well, you know, he's going to, he can't drop Matt Burton and that's the side that he's on. And, he, and then when you're talking about Crichton, that was my initial thought. Maybe he starts with Crichton and, and I think that he could do a better job than Crichton potentially. But Crichton hasn't done terribly. He's a good attacking player. And at the end of the day, he's better on that side than what Whiten is. So maybe Whiten then becomes your utility. But then the more I thought of it again, it was like, well, I don't really want to drop Appy or, or Cook and you've got to drop one of them. So, you know, I, the more I thought about it, the more I think that I understand the Whiten pick. Um, I don't like the McLean slash Lafiti pick though for New South Wales. Yeah, look, I um, only saw on the Podmasters chat just before we started recording this that the, the boys had mentioned about McLean. Uh, obviously I've been... Uh, a bit crooked the last few days, but not only that, just uh, just busy earlier this morning. So I actually missed the news uh, with regards to Jordan McLean being out, but picked it up just before we started the recording. So, yeah, look, I um, Jacob Saifidi is a bit of an interesting one, especially when Daniel Saifidi is obviously the brother. Is, um, he's played Origin before, so you could sort of argue that obviously he's he's been injured, um, but if he's a bench forward, he's probably only going to be playing for 25 minutes, half an hour, something along those lines. Uh, depending on whether or not there's injury. But uh, you'd like to think the New South Wales pack can can reshuffle enough to cover most injuries regardless. But, yeah, look, I, I don't – I mean, I guess it comes back to what we were saying before. When you need someone to do a job, you want to replace them at origin level with someone who's going to scare the crap out of the other team. Jacob Saifidi really doesn't scare the crap out of me any different to what uh, Gilbert does, I suppose. But – um, Good comparison. Uh, but, I mean, that's that's sort of what Origin's all about. You need those uh, the players that are just going to steamroll and bust tackles and, and um, be there in each other's face. And I don't think Jacob Saifidi's any of the above. He, he's, he's more of a gentle giant than anything else. Mind you, I don't know the bloke personally. So uh, I, I, I'm glad he lives in Newcastle and nowhere near Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, look, it's he's just it's a bit of a strange call, mate. I, I think um, a lot of us in the the, off, the chats online, we've been talking about Clemmer and how well he's played this season, and he's really hitting the form that he that he was playing as well as what he was when he had an Origin jersey. So it, it he's it's like he's just shit the bed completely, and um, and hasn't even been in the conversation. And now we're all saying that with Jordan McLean being picked, and everyone sort of thought, well, surely Clemmer does. But Jordan McLean got picked. And again, does it come back to well, playing at the Cowboys and the Cowboys have been doing really well. So let's just stick some more Cowboys in there. Mm, uh, I think I actually, I've been like, I, I was even from game one talking Clemmer up to being in the side, but I, I saw some data on his play the balls the last couple of years. And it really, it makes a lot more sense. And that speaks to the point I was making where, where Fittler's looking at a lot of different niche things that he knows will, will combine into the sort of team that he needs to win a game and to fix issues. And Clemens play the balls are, are quite slow compared to some of the other options. So I think that's really a lot of what it comes down to. He's just 
a little bit like why RCG lost his job, I think. Like he's just he's one of those older school, bigger front rowers that's a little bit slower and uh, and and that's slow to play the balls for the ruck. You know, I think that that's that's coming to play quite a bit. I think Clemmer's game's very similar to Jake Trebojevic, though, and that's why I do like him. He is that that block play type player that stops stops the defensive line from getting through to the quarterback type series. He's um, but not only that, Clemmer's a big hitting player. Uh, and certainly can take a hit as well. He's, I don't know, mate. I, I think I think they've missed a bit there. I mean, I, I do as well. Criticise the team too much uh, because look at how many points they put on us. But I think Clem is the kind of player that is just made for origin, and, and he's the bloke that steps up on those big occasions. I, I can't for the life of me understand how he's not playing off the bench there somewhere. Yeah, look, it's it is it is one of the things that I don't like as much, but I'm happy to believe in Freddie and and you know the team based on what how they performed. But you know, one of the other controversial ones was I think everybody expected Talakai to come off the bench um, once they had some more bodies to put into the side, and he's still in Jersey 17. But the more that you look at it, you know, Talakai being in there on the bench really speaks to why guys like Clemmer aren't in there. Fitler has built a, a forward pack and a side in general that is both really mobile. Um, quite agile, quite athletic, very fast. But also I think the biggest thing is that it's versatility. You know, everyone is very versatile and Talakai can play prop, he could play edge back row or he could play centre. And I think that's what ended up keeping him his job. And when you have a look at the side, uh, I think I can see a lot of, it's obviously a similar side to game two, so it's silly of me to say, but you see a lot of the strengths from the game two side and that's going to translate straight to game three, that it's going to be very hard for Queensland. So let's talk about, um, how we think each side took, can win this one. Now, for me, with the Blues sticking on them before we pass over to Queensland for you, with the Blues, uh, they play, first of all, playing in Queensland is going to be really hard for them. You know, very low win percentage. I think they've won two out of the last 10 in Queensland or something like that. Uh, it's, it's a very hard one for them. So that's going to be a big advantage for Queensland and even things up a lot despite the big loss. I think the Blues are going to win off the back of Exactly what we said though before that if they if they're going to dominate the play the balls and the speed and their their back three is going to be able to do what they did the first couple of games you know Tupo himself had ten tackle breaks in that game two performance over twenty runs if they do what they did then I don't see Queensland being able to keep up with the points and I still see a lot of points even in Brisbane maybe the Brisbane factor brings them down to a thirty point game but again Queensland scored sixteen and twelve so I don't think the Queensland will be able to outscore them with the team they pick so. New South Wales will obviously need Cleary to fire and you'll need Teddy to fire as well. Uh, but that's how I see New South Wales being able to win this one in, in uh, Brisbane. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll be brutally honest. I absolutely agree. I I can't see – I certainly won't be tipping us. Um, I like to tip with my head, not my heart. Um, but, yeah, mate, look, I, I can't see how there's going to be that much difference between – I mean, there was obviously a big difference between game one and game two, but we've already talked about that. I can't see there being a big difference between game two and game three. I think what will come down to, I think the, the Queensland crowd will probably maybe put a bit of pressure back on the, the referees, I guess, to replicate the Felice Cafusi type thing, but from um, obviously the on the with the New South Wales defence. Um, I think in the in holding down, I think if there's anything slightly untoward. I think the Queensland crowd will smash them. Maybe that might change the penalty count, the six again count again. Um, I think that that side of things will have an influence, which then may slow the game down in some ways and speed it up in others. Um, outside of that, I really just, I can't see, 
I can't see Queensland putting forty points on New South Wales. That's for sure. No. I, I could not see. I could not see a role reversal of a game being forty four twelve with us winning. Not unless you guys have. There's a sniper at the top of Suncorp Stadium picking some of your boys off or something or other. I don't know. I think even if they lost Nathan Cleary, I, I couldn't see the game changing that much. Not with the quality of of um, blokes that you've got there that could fill the spots. I was really against the Talakai. Um, inclusion for game two originally and then by the time we did the podcast on i mean the the sides were picked on the sunday by the time we did our podcast for tragics on uh, the wednesday night yeah look i I was basically i've done a 180 i i absolutely agree with what you said before i think the versatility i think if any player goes down you guys can fill a gap if we lose cherry evans if we lose munster i'm not convinced that we can fill the same gaps when three or four players have to take a step to the left. Um, and I think that's going to be the big difference. And let's be honest, we all know origin. It can be in the first tackle of the game. Um, Jose Yostar, mm. uh, where he should have been gone, but it could be the first tackle of the game where all of a sudden Nathan Cleary gets knocked out or something like that. And I just, origin does some strange things at strange times. But, yeah, look, I, I think you guys have got uh, a lot more versatility across the park to fill the gaps that we've Can got. I even say, too, like, when we're talking to that with the Queensland side, the 18th man is Tom Flegler. Like, I I don't think that's a smart move. Um, Jack White's the 18th man for New South Wales, and Nico Hines was the 18th man previously. I think that's the type of player you need as 18th man. Like, I would have had the hammer there just because of the versatility with the shifts around that you could have if you did end up in, in dire straits with that. But how Queensland can win, mate, for me, Playing in Queensland helps, so that's a big tick. Um, I think that's going to even things up um, significantly. The big, the two keys for me and uh, how they can win, one, their forward pack could dominate. If their forward pack dominates, um, the class that they've got in the spine can win them the game, and that's how they'll do it. If the forward pack just is, is okay, uh, then I think that it's going to take a monumental effort, um, individual efforts from two of their spine players. You know, if, if Munster and Cherry Evans or... Or Ponga, if, if two, two out of those three guys have an absolute blinder, then they'll be able to win the game for Queensland themselves. Um, but likewise, you know, that whole spine could win it, and that's how Queensland need to do it. Grant Hunt is a great combo. Uh, those halves with Munster and DC and Kalen Ponga, if all those guys are firing and playing well, they could beat, they could definitely beat New South Wales with the home ground advantage. And I think that that's, that's the way it's going to have to travel. But they're going to need a, all those guys to be playing really well. And they're going to need their forward pack to play better than what they look on paper. But to me, that's how Queensland can beat the Blues. And it's definitely a possibility still. I, I think the speed of Harry Grant and, uh, and Caelan Ponga, if they, can, if they can both play to their potential, I think... Um, out wide, if we can get the ball early enough with with Cobo in enough space, I think that's um, that's another area for for attack and for um, yeah. Look, I, I think that's that just seems to be about all we've got. I think we've as soon as uh, Ruben Cotter was out for game two. I mean, the bloke made what sixty four tackles for game one, and that was monumental. And I said on the the Tragics pod that uh, that that was. We just don't have that kind of player in our forward pack anymore that's going to come up with another 60-odd tackles. I think that he alone, I think, was a big part of, of why we lost that game. Just the fact that, that he's, uh, he's like Matt Gillett. Um, I mean, we Queensland's had so many of those tackling, just tackle machines for so long. 
that we just don't seem to have anymore. And I think that makes a massive difference. Look at the tackle, the missed tackle count was was 54 missed tackles. That's Reuben Cotter on his own. So I, I think that um, that we just don't have the tackle bot that's going to fill that space. Predictions for this one, and we'll move on to the last bit of the podcast. I've got the New South Wales Blues winning 28 to 16. 28 16. Oh, look, I'm going to say it's a little bit closer. Uh, I'm going to say. Look, I'll probably say New South Wales 22-18. Nice one. Well, I think it's going to be a great contest anyway. It's been a really good series. Uh, last part of the podcast, Legend Rewind. Fan favourite, also a host favourite. Love doing it. Uh, this one's going to speak right to your wheelhouse, mate, because you get to talk about an old Bronco. So Legend Rewind, the podcast looks back on an old uh, player's career that's since many years retired. Uh, and this one's going to be on a Broncos legend. He played front row forward. Six-foot frame, 112, 115 kilos playing weight was a was a brick, as you could probably imagine. Shane Webke. Now, he, he had a great career. I can't wait to hear what you think of him from a, a Broncos fan's perspective. But for me, as a non-Bronco fan, I loved him. He was one of my favourite front rowers in my lifetime. Uh, it's sort of – it might come off as a bit of a, a backhander, but to me, I kind of saw him as um, – a uh, Glenn Lazarus light, <laughs> you know, I, I think Glenn Lazarus is the best prop I've ever seen, but I think the web had all the similarities and was just behind him. You know, he wasn't as good, but he, he, he was very close to him. And anyone that's close to Lazo is pretty special. 315 first class games, um, obviously a prop, so 26 tries. So he wasn't known for that, but things that I remember from web you know, when you're looking at his numbers first, he stayed with the Brisbane Broncos his whole career. Um, 254 non-finals games with the Broncos, uh, but he also played a heap of games for Australia with 27 games, including Super League, including uh, Super League for Origin matches for the Queenslanders. He played 24 matches, which was a huge amount as well for a prop to play in Origin history. And he was a hometown hero, which I, I love. But when we're talking about how we remember him playing, I said that he was like Glenn Lazarus to me, Tim, and that's that that really is how I remember him playing. He was a guy that was like a brick. Uh wasn't quite as big as Lazarus, but he's one of those big, bulky front rowers. Uh, but he was just hard. And he hurt you in attack. Um, the way he ran the ball was hard and straight and aggressive, and you knew it was hurting the defenders every time, but he made a, a massive amount of meters. But one of the big things with him that was similar to Lazo is that he didn't seem like he should have the motor that he had to do the work rate that he did at his size and his frame, but he had this immense work rate, especially for taking the hit-ups. And then on the way he moved, like he did move like one of the old school front rowers, but you know, another contradiction was he actually had more agility than what you would expect from someone his size as well. You know, by no means was he like a back rower edge athlete, but just for his size, you know, you didn't normally get guys that played as hard as he did the way he did as a prop that also had the motor and also had a bit of agility in there. So he was a little bit of a one of a kind, although very similar to sort of Lazo, in my opinion. And the last thing that I'll say with him is defensively on the other side of the ball, um, you know, one of the things that I think Payne Haas, for example, people talk about him as being one of the best props ever, potentially. One of the things I think he really lacks that guys like Lazo and, and Webke had Webke used to absolutely belt people in defence. They're really aggressive, really hard hits. And I don't think anyone wanted to run at him because it would be akin to running into a brick wall. And that's how it was. I think that someone like Payne Haas and some of these contemporary front row forwards don't have that. 
he was scary, Webke. And to, to be able to play alongside him, like I reckon if you ask a lot of the Broncos of, of old, who one of their favourite players to play alongside, so many of them would say Shane Webke. And that's because he would have been... The last thing, toughness. Mate, he, he broke his arm in a semi-final and still played the grand final that year for the Broncos. You know, if you want to talk about toughness and also professionalism, he was one of the most professional players and just a, a great stand-up role model rugby league player. So for me, I'll put Arthur Beetson and Lazarus ahead of him, but, geez, it's close for me with him and the all-time props. <laughs> mate, I, I feel like I should be clapping. Uh, mate, that was a, a great synopsis. Very well <laughs> done. And are you sure you're not a closet Broncos fan? Um, mate, uh, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm definitely sure of that one. Mate. <laughs> I'm a massive, massive Webby fan. It was actually really interesting. I was sitting there watching the news last night because he does the, does the sport on the news as well. And, uh, and flicking between channels. And I had Wally Lewis on one channel and Webby on the other. And uh, I, all I was waiting on was the Walsh story. So flicking back and forwards to see which one. Uh, Queenslander's wet dream, that news balloon. Oh, mate, it was fantastic. I, I loved every bit of it. Mate, he is, he's absolutely one of my favourite forwards. I love the way that you've likened him to Lazo. Um, the other one that I would probably say similar to would be uh, probably Paul Harrigan. Uh, but I think a little bit more fleet-footed. Than, than what Harrigan was. Yep, I, I absolutely, good comparison. I, I absolutely agree with you, mate. The bloke was just a steamroller. There's no way in hell I'd be putting my hand up to stand in front of Shane Webke and try and tackle that. The the bloke had legs like tree trunks and just the leg speed. Like a, you hear a lot of the commentators now talk about um, forward packs with leg speed. Some of those blokes back then, oh, my God, it was like they were running 100 miles an hour and it was just a freight train coming through. But, yeah, I, I think he was one of the... Um, uh, the first big players as well that, that sort of really brought the offload into the game as well. I mean, I know the offload has been around for a long time, but the whole thing was sort of try and run straight, but then turn your back a little bit so that you could you were sort of facing, uh, I guess, your back towards the, the defensive line to get the offload away was something that he was really good at as well. But yeah, in attack and defence, he was the bloke that you would uh, you'd be more than happy to stand behind and let him take the big hits and then uh, pick the half back off. So yeah, look, he's um he's certainly one of my favourite players of all time when it comes into the the forward stocks. The like you said, his his toughness from breaking his arm in a semi final and then playing a grand final uh, two weeks later was just unbelievable. Um, I remember watching <laughs> watching the padding go on his arms and things like that, and and you just thought, oh my god, how the hell is this bloke going to get through it? And sure enough, still managed to play really big minutes at a final when it mattered. And um and it could be one of the reasons reasons why the Broncos were so successful for that that whole period there. Yep, and I like I, one of the other th- key things that I remember, and like I, I like to be able to remember specific moments. And I certainly remember the broken arm moment, but I can't remember these moments because it's like it's in my head as pictures, but it's all a blur because he did it so often. Where there was all these guys that would run at him that he would just flatten without actually doing anything. And that, that was like a really big, that's really big in my memory set. There is so many games that you can recall of him just going in hard, like sort of chest first and just, you know, monstering guys. And it was other forwards, all right? It wasn't small guys. Guys would just run into him and just get absolutely brick-walled. And it, that was, there's so many highlights of that for me. But I'll finish off on a couple of numbers for him as well. You know, he's a front rower that's got four first-grade premierships with the Broncos, 97, 98, 2000, and 2006. That is absolutely huge. Uh, he's also a front rower that's got, when you include his representative appearances and everything, well over 300 games. But big thing for me, which I'd finish up on with him, is that I, I think 
if you want to know how good somebody is from from that many years past, a lot of people talk about the modern game, you know, and and, and often far too glowingly in comparison to some of the older timers. If you put Shane Webke in the NRL now, it is a completely different type of NRL than what it was when he was playing. Uh, it's a lot faster. There's all, you know, a lot of things on, on speed and agility with the front rowers. There's a lot of things around, you know, the, the middle forwards locks that are these smaller guys now and everything. If you put him in, he would be the best prop in the NRL right now. And I've got no doubt in saying that at all. He would absolutely dominate. And I'll go as far to say that pretty much every forward in the NRL would not know what hit them because he would knock him in the next week running the ball and he'd knock him in the next week defensively. And there isn't really any players like that. You know, it's sort of, I'm going to have a real, uh, I'm going to throw in a real quirky uh, pop culture reference here. Anyone seen Demolition Man? Great Sylvester Stallone movie with Wesley Snipes. It's like when Sly Stallone and Wesley Snipes got thrown in 30 years into the future after getting thawed out. If you did that, you know, Webkey would shock the world and shock everyone just like those guys did in that film. So a bit of a pop culture reference there, mate. But Webke, right, he's one of my favourite front rowers of all time. And you could throw him in the NRL right now and he's the number one prop for me. Mate, how much do you reckon Billy would love to have Webby sitting there in his front row for, for uh, Wednesday night? Mate, he would be, geez, he'd, he'd come close to being, well, he'd certainly be the first forward picked for Queensland in comparison to what we've got at the moment. Um, but yeah, And he could carry um, a pack too. Like he would absolutely carry a pack by himself which was just played, outstanding. He played big minutes too. He he wasn't just sort of like a 40-40 front rower. Um, he played he play plenty of minutes. Uh, but like you were saying, just as solid in attack as he was in defence, it, it was just like the bloke did not have a weak link anywhere. Um, he, he had the speed. He, he had um, the solidity in his, in his defence. But then, yeah, could throw an offload, could bust tackles, could just absolutely steamroll blokes with the ball in hand. It just, like you said, if he was in the game now, he would arguably be the best front rower in the game right now. Yep. And it, and there's not there's not too many players, when you look back 15, 20 years ago, that you could say that. Yeah, it's very true. And to finish up on, if Webke was a, was a film, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, that is him to a T. Oh, and, absolutely. He's nearly got the same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> he, looks, he looks similar, actually. Actually, he's probably more... He'd probably be more, more like uh, Drago, I'd imagine, out of the Rocky movies. Oh, that's a good one too. Oh, I might have to, I might have to use that one in the future. Tim, <laughs> NRL 360 uh, podcast champion from the past and also a current Supercoach Tragics podcast uh, aficionado that's often on every second week or so on, on the Tragics podcast. Thank you for jumping on the NRL All-Stars podcast for the Talk and Footy episode. It was great to have you on. Fantastic, mate. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a joy to be here and... Uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly going to be interesting this Wednesday and uh, and the rest of the season's looking pretty good for most teams, especially my Broncos. Yep, yep. Good luck with the origin, mate. Hope you lose. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to listen to the podcast, you can download us and listen on SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, iTunes, also Amazon and Audible, but pretty much everywhere. You can also jump on our sponsor. If you love having a bet, do it responsibly, but jump on topsport.com.au to have a punt today. They often have best odds in market and you can use SC All-Stars as a promo code to create an account so they take great care of you when they see that you're one of our listeners. SC All-Stars is your promo code. And as far as next podcast, we've got the TLT Supercoach podcast going. Record on Tuesday, drop on Wednesday, and then we'll also have another Talking Footy podcast at the end of the week. But thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the four games of footy we've got coming up in the buy round and also... Very much enjoy Origin Game 3, the decider in Brisbane.
Hopefully everyone has a great game and it's a good one to watch and talk about next week. Thanks for listening once again. Hey now, you're an all-star.